This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. The participants in this episode of Love That Album are pleased to acknowledge the traditional owners of Nam land on which we have recorded this podcast. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, that we are operating on stolen land and express our gratitude and acknowledgement and respect of elders past, present and emerging. Thank you. Morris speaking. Welcome to episode 149 of Love That Album podcast. We're proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. And this is also episode one of the second set of 10 years of this show. Last month, we completed the first set of 10 years. Bye-bye. Farewell. Piss off. This is the start of a new era. Hopefully, I'll last the next 10 years. I don't know. We will see. And I can't think of a better way to start the next set of 10 years of Love That Album than to have two wonderful musicians on this show, one who's already been on and one who hasn't, mother and son, and also two-thirds of a wonderful Tex-Mex group. I don't know if they ever gave themselves a name. I should introduce them as El Mejo Baza and Mama, <laughs> but I think I'll introduce them as Sarah Carroll and George Carroll Wilson. Welcome to the show. Hola. 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 Uh, we'll have to come up with a Mexican name for you. Marissa. I would be honoured. See if you can come up with one before the end of the show. Will uh, do. For the people out there who may not be aware, so what was happening last year, during the second of the lockdowns, I've lost count. The two of you, plus El Wapo Segundo, aka Fen Wilson, would play uh, from El Rancho Clifto on do a video every <laughs> Saturday night and do some country tunes and some pop tunes in a Tex Mex variety. And I have to say that your version of Eight Days a Week has probably shot up in one of my all time favorite Beatles covers. Uno, dos, tres, uno, dos, tres. And 
I cherish Beatles covers. You and Zoot up there. That's it. Yeah, I love the Zoot Eleanor Rigby. That's killer, isn't it? It's absolutely killer. Sarah, you were on recently on the program a few months ago. We were talking about Chris's Live at the Continental as well as your own work with Git and the Left Wing. I guess, well, there's both of you because George, you played in your mother's band, the Left Wing. And That's right. It really, you've got something of a family music empire. George, though, yes. I want the listeners out there to know a little bit about your musical background. I know you through your work as Polyman, multi-instrumentalist, playing absolutely everything or nearly everything apart from the harmonica, I think, on your Polyman album, and also as drummer in Tiny Giants. But just give us a little bit about your background, where you come from musically. I mean, okay, besides sure. being in the great musical dynasty. It was never really a decision I had to make, to be honest. I was raised in a very musical household, of course. Both my parents were always playing, and I was going to gigs before I was even born. Like, I was going to gigs in utero. I don't know if that's a bit too much information for this early in the podcast, but... um, where it's a fact. Yeah, yeah, it's a fact, so deal with it. <laughs> so music was always very much in my life. I always loved it and loved performing from as early as I could. And I started off just loving dancing and singing, but then as I got older, I, I looked up to my brother a lot, my older brother, Fen, because he, he played drums originally, and so I started getting into drums when I was little, and then that was the only instrument I played, except for a, you know a little bit of guitar and a little bit of piano here and there. And then when primary school rolled around, I met a kid named Jasper, who was pretty much the only other musician, or the only other kid playing music seriously in primary school and so he and I played together a lot in towards the end of primary school and when high school rolled around there was another kid that went to my school named Etienne who played bass and so we started a trio that ended up we yeah we ended up staying together all throughout high school and then sort of fizzed out towards the end of high school that was when I first started like trying out my own solo stuff as well and started playing with another band called Bones and Jones just doing percussion and just just basically any instrument that I was just put learning for the first time. I exercise in Bones and Jones, such as lap steel and saxophone and just, you know, tambourine and maracas. I was already kind of across those. Yeah, and then that sort of brings me up to now. And of course, playing in mum's band was a really great experience, like recording and playing bass. That much, yeah, that much was really rewarding and really fun. And yeah, I loved being in the studio with it. Yeah, well. we had tours, some good tours, didn't we, Georgie? We did. And some yeah. art tours also. And some what? Arduous ones. Yes. Well, the arduous came with the good. I tried I to think. always make it fun anyway. Yeah, yeah, it was always fun, even if it was hard or weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are often the funnest ones after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm doing Polyman, which is a four-piece now, and we've just been recording. We had just finished recording a new album of all new stuff just before that lockdown number five happened. So that's still in the process because unfortunately I haven't been able to finish that off yet, but that's in the works and I've been recording and playing with Fen's band for the last couple of years and yeah, I'm playing with Bones and Jones recording and playing with them for the last few years. So I'm yeah, I'm keeping very busy musically, that's for sure. That's terrific. I can't wait for the space between lockdown number six and lockdown number seven to come and see you. Yes. <laughs> Maybe we'll get a gig in. Yeah, that'd be nice. That'd be uh, sweet. That'd be good. I 
should say for those of you who've just downloaded this and haven't looked at your app to work out what we're actually here to talk about. On the See Here podcast, which is the music film podcast I do with my great friends Tim Merrill and Bernard Stickwell, we did an episode fairly early on in the show's run about the 1976 Australian film Oz, a rock and roll road movie. And we also invited Mike White from the projection booth. So that most Australian of films hosted by me with a Yank, a Canadian and a Pom. Who had bloody idea. Yeah, they just couldn't quite get it. They didn't quite get their heads around it. And no. Earlier on this year, I noticed, Sarah, that you had a post saying that you and George had just watched, I think for the first time, Oz yes. Rock and Roll Road movie. That's before, but Georgie had never seen it, so I really wanted him to see it. Right. Okay. So, and you both said, we both absolutely fucking love this. Or words yeah. to that effect. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to be too crude about it, but that's, I think, what you said. I wanted another chance to talk about it, but I thought, well, I have a music podcast. Let's talk about the soundtrack. Inevitably, we'll be shoehorning stuff about the film in as well. It's just inevitable. Yeah. So, well, it's so tied into the movie that they're kind of one and the same a lot of the time. Exactly. We're going to go to Joanne, who's going to give the contact details. And then before we come back to talk about our thoughts about the album and the movie, I have an interview that I recorded about a week ago with ex-member of Jojo Zepp and the Falcons and the Black Sorrows and a few other bands, Wayne Burt. Now, the suggestion that I get in contact with Wayne was yours, Sarah, and I thank you so much for uh, putting me in contact with him because he's such a lovely fella. And we got to speak not just about Oz, but about what the music scene was like at the time. And that's the sort of stuff I'm really fascinated about. Well, before we come back, you'll hear that interview with Wayne from Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. And then we'll come back to talk about our thoughts about Oz, a rock and roll road movie, or if you're in America, 20th century Oz. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to Morris, George and Sarah. We'll be back shortly. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Welcome back to episode 149 of Love That Album, and I'm really, really excited to have on the line from Parts Unknown, somewhere in Melbourne, I think. Yep, somewhere in the east. Yep. <laughs> Ex-Falcon, Wayne Burt. Welcome to Love That Album, Wayne. 
Uh, hi, good evening. Thank you very, very much for being part of the show. And I'm going to be asking you questions that will probably stretch the memory a bit because we Yeah, that'll freak me out. I mean, I'm, you know, I've been um, deliberately not sort of trying to reminisce too much. Uh, otherwise, you can accidentally start living in the past too much. But a, but a bit of it's good. Yeah, just a little bit of historical context because this is a soundtrack album yep. that I'm really, really keen on. There's lots happening at that time, what's well, all happening at one time? But just bear in mind, I haven't heard the album for since way back then. I haven't owned the album. <laughs> I think I saw the movie once around about when it came out. You're the only person that's really sort of revisited there, or well, a couple of other people have said, "Ah, oh, that album, blah blah blah." But I must admit, I just thought it was sort of lost in the in the mist of time. But anyway, this is good. You're digging deep. Before we get into talking about your recollections in relation to the soundtrack and to the film, I want to just sort of go back. A a little bit before that, maybe a year or two prior. So I found out recently that you and fellow Falcon and fellow Black Sorrow, Jeff Burston, along with the bop girl herself, Pat Wilson, had a band called Rock Granite and The Profiles. And musically, it really does sound like a precursor to the Falcon's sound. I heard a couple of tracks on YouTube. There was a performance with you guys at, I think, the University of New South Wales, a gig you were doing there, a song called Funky Spunky Monkey. Somebody sent that to me. A few things have resurfaced. Did the profiles ever actually record anything, like record a, a, an album or a single or anything? Oh, look, we did a few demos and stuff. Look, we were just kind of getting our act together, and we didn't really have a sort of record company or anything. We were basically just evolving. Because, look, the original rock round and the profiles really come out of this art school band. You know, like I went, I did graphic art at Caulfield Tech. So there's a bunch of guys there and a few people from Paran Tech. Somehow we were intermingling, and we, we just put this really anarchic band together. It was almost sort of an anti-music, apart from about four guys that could including myself, who kind of could play just enough. And uh, we started getting a few gigs, right? That was Rock Run and The Profiles, and Pat sort of joined at a point. It was more or less a free-for-all, like anybody could be in the band who turned up on the night. Yeah, we started to get a few gigs, because it was that time when all sorts of weird stuff, as long as you were having a go, and... uh, uh, you know, it was sort of was kind of mad and crazy, and um, yeah, and obviously the connection with Ross Wilson, his his brother-in-law, Pat's brother, was at art school. He ended up just joining the band, doing whatever, playing anything he'd get his hands on. And it was a it was a riot, you know, it was mad. But we just wrote all these funny songs, and um, but in the meantime, I was writing some sort of quirky songs and the occasional sort of semi-serious song, but mostly you know, songs that were a bit frivolous and a bit of fun. But anyway, look, that folded for whatever reason, and then. And look, I probably wanted to change the name to something else, you know, not just to start afresh. But actually, with Ross Wilson sort of kicking me out the ass a bit, said, I oh, don't, no, you know, you got some good songs, why don't you get a band together? So anyway, just started looking around and I finally met actually this guy, Peter Martin, who was in Captain Matchbox for a while, but he's, he played a few gigs. And then Jeff was a friend of his. So uh, when Peter was either playing with Captain Matchbox or doing something else, Jeff was kind of up for it. So. 
And he'd just been in um, Company Kane, which was with Russell Smith, the guitar player, and what's his name? Oh, the, the singer guy, Smith. That, Gulliver Smith? Gulliver Smith, yeah, yeah. That, you know, wrote Touch of Paradise. with Yes, Ross. yes. So that was splitting up or whatever. Uh, John Power was in that band, but it kind of split. So Jeff was up for doing something. Um, we got a bass player. We had a few bass players, even Wayne Duncan for a while, and then Chris Stafford, and this guy, Bob Bickerton, on drum. So we started getting a few gigs around and whatnot. But we just really made a few demos, getting a few gigs. And I wasn't sure what the, if I wanted to pursue doing graphic art. Or There were so many bands around, you could just get away with playing in a band and doing a bit of part-time work here and there. So I sort of went down that route. I think Ross had finished with Daddy Cool, or that had just finished up. But he just wanted to rejig it for a tour. And I ended up joining this last version of Daddy Cool with Hannaford playing bass. And it was around about that period that sort of we did a tour with the Palaco brothers, with Joe Camilleri in it, Stephen Cummings and all that crew. And um, when, yeah, and then the Daddy Cool thing was sort of petered out after a point. And so there's all these people kind of lying around thinking what to do. And I guess Ross was thinking Joe would be a good thing to get together with. And so somehow the embryo of the Falcon started out of that. And I think he used Ross, who got offered to do the soundtrack of the Oz movie, Ross Wilson. I think he just thought he'd use the sort of us kind of musos to, as a backing band with Hannaford as well. So that's kind of how the band for that thing got together. The Oz soundtrack, looking at the lineup of the various songs, it seems to be like a lot of cross-pollination between the songs listed as Ross Wilson and the songs listed as Jojo Zepp and the Falcon. So maybe it's more like a collective. Yeah, look, it was just sort of throwing some things together because I, I already had, I guess because it was an Aussie-themed movie, like I had a couple of songs already that were that style and it was beaten around the bush and I had this other song, Glad I'm Living Here, which is, I think, inspired by the Randy Newman, you know, political science song. But anyway, so there's a couple of songs there. So I think Ross thought, oh, well, you got some songs. He was starting to, for the soundtrack, was starting to write a few Australia's themed tunes. So we went in and sort of banged them down at the old Channel 9 studios, I think, and with maybe a few other musos on there as well. That was something I was going to ask. So you're saying that those songs were already in your arsenal, as it were. They weren't written specifically for the film. That's right. Yeah, well, for me, I mean, Ross probably wrote some of the songs specifically. I think it was a song about a mechanic or something and, you know, living in the land of Oz or whatever. I'm not entirely sure of that. I don't know. Is there other people doing tracks on it as well, or is it Pretty much just us guys. There's the couple of Jojo Zepp and the Falcons cuts. Most of the rest are listed to Ross Wilson, except I think that there's one or two cuts which feature, well, there's Graham Mathers doing the old Missing Links song, You're Driving Me Insane. I want to love a little girl. I want to love a little Then there's one or two tracks that Joy Dunstan herself sings on top of, but with... Oh, 
Oh, you guys yeah. backing her up. That's right. Because, look, you know, apart from sort of whacking the tracks down, recording him and stuff, I mean, Ross was the producer and pretty much we wouldn't be there for all of that. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of things I probably wasn't really there for. I guess when it was put down, then we were sort of off back to trying to get our various bands together or putting the bones of the Jojo Zep thing together. Yeah, because John Power was also in Company Kane and he ended up, I think we had another bass player initially, but then John was lurking around and so was Gary Young and that sort of became the core of the band. So it's all a bit scattered, but that's pretty much what happened. This will maybe stretch the memory as well a bit, not specifically about Rock Granite and the Profiles or even Jojo Zep and the Falcons per se, but by 1975, which is when this all seemed to happen. Yeah. The Australian music scene was seemingly changing quite a lot. I mean, probably a lot of it due to Countdown coming in. But like the early 70s, I mean, of course, there's always a mixture of bands, but it seemed like the ones that were big in the early 70s were heavy blues-based boogie bands, you know, uh, Carsons and Chains. Yeah, well, it was kind of coming out of the more the hippie, serious stuff. Uh, It was getting more into pub rock kind of territory, perhaps, which was a good and bad thing. Well, where where did you guys see that you fit in? Because you you weren't, like, trying to explode things like I think like it will be as heavy as say Billy Aztec and the Thorps which were really out to blow up your eardrums or anything like that but Skyhooks which Ross Wilson produced was sort of taking things in a new direction it seemed like there were a lot of bands that were coming out that were changing the scene a lot I mean I'm thinking the only band that comes to my mind initially uh, that maybe was doing what you guys were doing would have been Renee Gaye's band of that period but were there any other bands that you could think of that were sort of doing what Jojo Zepp and the Falcons were doing? Well, look, initially it was a bit of a mystery what we were going to be because I just had these, you know, I was writing most songs and Joe was a bit from a very sort of, you know, almost sort of darterous, you know, Captain Beefheart sort of territory with, you know, Lip and the Double Decker Brothers and all. Flacco Brothers more or less alternative bands, which is great. And, and I kind of like that as well. But I guess I just had a more of a sort of pop song mentality, but with a bit of depth and stuff that was essentially a bit of fun. And Joe was also into soul music and all sorts of stuff. And John was kind of a blues. We're all into the bluesy thing. It was a matter of sort of me, because I, I knew I could kind of write and sing a few songs, but I didn't have the voice to really fully sort of lead a band and nail it all night, you know what I mean? Just And as far as a showman goes, like Joe, you know, he's willing to be reasonably outrageous and actually really enjoys that role and a great sax player and stuff. So I, I knew I kind of needed somebody as a bit of a front from some of the songs I was writing. So we just tried it out. I started that's writing a few songs that I thought would suit him. So we were kind of a sort of a rock blues soul band, really. So it never really set out to be anything in particular. It was just kind of finding out what it could be. But it just wanted to be dance music, basically, and kind of good fun, in a way, kind of old style. The earliest song that I remember from the band was The Honey Dripper, the old Joe Liggins song. And if you can't dance 
suggesting yeah. that someone's cut yeah. your feet off. Well, exactly. Like, yeah, it was just a really good dance band, and we weren't too sort of self-indulgent about playing long, you know, sort of self-indulgent pieces that you're meant to just sit there and totally study. It was definitely meant to be appreciated on a few levels, but also having a sort of artistic level through it as well, um, not totally sort of throwaway pop because there was plenty of that around at the time so it was still like a tough rock blues soul band it had a certain toughness but it treated that sort of middle ground you know I guess like an R&B band yeah we were just trying to see what it worked for the first Jojo Zepp album you were the I think the only songwriter and by the time you got to the second one I think you shared some stuff with Joe so was writing songs something that you really had ambition to do or did it just sort of fall on you because you'd been doing it for Rock Granite and the Profiles yeah well I liked it it became sort of what I liked doing because I you know when I started playing guitar like I could the guitar was more or less a bit of a prop to writing some songs, you know. I was just interested in a few lyrics and Chuck Berry songs, obviously, Bob Dylan and all that stuff. So it was always an interest to use the guitar as a bit of a way to get a song out rather than just an end in itself, even though I can sort of be a lead guitar player if I need to be. But generally, I handed most of that over to Jeff or whatever, and I'd just play the occasional solos and handed most of the singing over to Joe because he's just really good at it and a great showman you know he'd just take the songs to a whole other level and be sort of ridiculous on stage and quite funny and so it was visually appealing you know and musically appealing yeah your very first single which was beating around the bush from the oz soundtrack it's you on vocals it would have been quite difficult i guess for for joe to compete i mean he, he does have a great very unique sort of voice but you'd really gone and shown your chops on on that song and... oh yeah well i'd already been doing that song you know and in a way i was sort of you know that probably would have been a song that came out under the if Rock Granite had a, signed some deal. Yeah, that probably would have been the song that we put out. But it seemed obvious because it was pretty catchy. Just just me do it and Joe playing sax, which really made the track. And then next time around, if Joe would go at it, there, there was no problem. It wasn't like I was taking over his territory or something. It was just he was just finding his voice really. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't hadn't really led a full on band, so he was a little bit sort of not quite confident about his ability to do all that stuff, which when it got there, it just came pouring out, you know. But, <laughs> um, so the idea was then to, you know, find some tracks that suited Joe. But I think, yeah, we ended up in doing, just to get a song out, I think then we put out Security or something, that old Otis Redding song. And Joe gradually started thinking of some ideas for songs. And, you know, we just include those as well. So that was the whole idea. I, I didn't particularly want to take over that role, you know, because he was singing. So he's got to want to enjoy what's coming out of his mouth. Some of the songs I was writing just wouldn't have suited him. So I had to kind of write uh, thinking about how it would work in the Falcons. I want to come back to the film itself. Do you recall anything about the Oz sessions, those couple of tracks that you did contribute, or plus the other things that you were working on behind Ross? Did Chris Levine ever come in to hear how things were going and say what he wanted? Or... <laughs> well, here's where I can't remember <laughs> really much, because... 
It's all such a blur, really. I just remember putting down some tracks that sounded like a band tuning up because that was part of the sort of background soundtrack to the movie was this band in a hall, you know, tuning up their instrument. You'll probably hear that on the album a bit where there's just this band fluffing around. Thank A bit of that and sort of incidental music, I suppose you would call it. And look, there was probably even like a, I'm sure we probably went to a movie launch or something. I can't remember it, <laughs> to be honest. Do you remember anything about the film? Very little. I just remember it was a sort of a landscapey kind of thing and the sort of Aussie outback kind of look. But because I haven't seen it for so long, it'd be quite mysterious actually seeing it again now. It'd be... I'll send you a link, Wayne. The whole film's on YouTube. Easily watched. I'd love to see it get a, a proper Blu-ray release at some stage. Oh, okay. Yeah, because look, it's a pretty quirky movie and sort of fantasyful and whatever. And I was probably a little bit more into going to art school and stuff. We were forever going and seeing Fellini movies and kind of pretty oddball sort of stuff. I just thought it was maybe a little... It was a fantasy thing and obviously a send-up of the, the Wizard of Oz or whatever, but I suppose I was thinking it was a little more of a, a sort of a pop movie in a way, which I sort of liked. I liked some of the attitude. And it was very Oz, you know, which was good. It was getting away from the Americana kind of taking over the screen. But I probably only saw it sort of once and then it didn't hang around long, right? I've read a whole bunch of stories about how uh, the budgets were stuffed up and the promotions were stuffed up and the soundtrack album didn't come out until after the film had been out. Yeah, so I think it was a little sort of confusing when the whole thing, all that happened. And then, you know, we were all just off doing our various things. Ross Wilson was probably off putting another band together or whatever. And it was just sort of left to sort of fluff around there trying to figure out what it was. If you actually listen to the first Mondo Rock album, Primal Park, there's Uh, some of the music on this album, like the Ross Wilson cuts, as I said, you're part of a few of them, really do sound like a continuation of what he'd started on Oz. Something of that, a tougher, more contemporary tough sound. What the darkness leaves behind Cannot be replaced by the day It's so easy to become resigned Yes it is Much too high a price to pay Yeah, yeah, Ross was probably coming out of the Daddy Cool thing, was getting a bit restricted probably in that, you know, being pigeonholed as a bit of a 50s revival band, which it was, and absolutely fabulous. So I think he just had a yearning to get a band that was a bit tougher and a bit funkier, perhaps, so he could write different types of material. And I suppose we were all kind of going down that road a bit. It was a jumble of a time, really. I think everybody was trying to find their feet in a way, probably including the guy that made the movie and all the actors and whatever, you know. It was Everybody was in the state of flux and anything was possible or impossible. It was a good time like that. You never got to meet Chris Levine, the director of Oz? Look, I probably did, but there was a lot of (laughs) things going on and he was busy putting the movie together and really I was just really there on the side, you know what I mean? And just happened to be kind of part of the band and a couple of songs I'd already written. So it wasn't like I sat down with him and said, can you write some songs like this or blah, 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 what are we... That was pretty much Ross Wilson's role to come up with new 
tracks for the album. And if I was asked, I'm sure I, I could have done that. But really, that was Ross's role. And he just selected some of the tunes that, that I had already there. You know, so he liaised with the director more than me. We were just kind of there <laughs> doing our thing, you know. I think it's a wonderful part of Australian music history to have been associated with. Oh, yeah, look, I, you know, I didn't think about it for a long time. You know, I'd almost forgotten about that album. But now, you know, it all seems kind of exciting now, you know, where it, it just seemed then to be another one of the kind of exciting things that were happening at the time because there was lots going on and things seemed to fall in place reasonably easy, you know, without having to try too hard. Yes, I'd actually like to see it and hear the album again. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Look, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate that. No problem. I hope that this very brief Walt Stan memory lane has been sort of pleasurable. You wish you could just somehow transport yourself back. You could kind of dig up more. But if you spoke to some other members of the band, they'd probably remember, obviously, things that I don't. So, no, it's good. It's I look forward to kind of having another listen. Okay, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 149. My thanks very much to Wayne Burt. Beautiful, thank you. In the city puts a lock on your door. Oh, yeah. And we're back. I want to say, um, Morris, if I could, about Wayne. I first met Wayne when he was playing in a band called The Rhythmetics at a pub called The Shakespeare, but it, it was a Friday night club called The Creole Club, and Wayne was in the first band that I really began to go and see regularly. So The Rhythmetics was sort of my favourite band when I was 16 and, and 17, and they were just the most fantastic R&B and soul band, and Wayne played rhythm guitar and, and sang in that band. So that's, wow. how I, that's how I came across him, and so, that would have been in 1982. The first rock concert I ever went to was at Festival Hall, one of those 3XY under 18s things for three bucks or something like that. Well, okay, so it was a three band bill. First band that was on the bill was The Numbers. I think they were from Perth. Um, yeah. The final band on the bill was Cold Chisel, but the band in the middle was Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. But, wow. I have, but I have a feeling that that was post Wayne because I think Screaming Targets had just come out. So, uh, yeah, so Tony Face would have been in the band by then. Yes. The first and the two guitarists. Yeah. Mm. That's my rock whiz moment. All right, so let's get into this. Let's talk about the film and the music of Oz, a rock and roll road movie. But I'd like to start this off by talking about Ross Wilson and Chris Levine, who are two of the central creative figures behind this project, behind Oz, a rock and roll road movie. So, Sarah, would I be right in assuming that you were hearing Ross on 3XY or any such other AM station in the 70s or the early 80s? Because he was fairly ubiquitous, certainly with Mondo Rock in the 80s. And um, I don't know if you maybe were too young to remember hearing Daddy Cool on the radio or not, but um, what do you remember? Uh, it would have been Daddy Cool, which they used to play at the Brighton Blue Light Disco, which I went <laughs> 14 and 15 years old. So in the very early 80s, I was going to the Brighton Blue Light Disco and Eagle Rock was always played as part of the night and it always filled the dance floor. And so I was aware of that song. Yeah. 
then I remember seeing Mondo Rock on Countdown. That must have been before that. And I remember seeing Mondo Rock on Countdown probably in about 1978 or thereabouts with that song, The Fugitive Kind. Do you remember oh, yes. that song? Yes, I do, yep. that Ross Wilson was a very, like he struck me as a really powerful sort of individual. You know how when you're a kid and you see people on the performing on the telly and Countdown was such a great melting pot and all kinds of heads would appear every week and, and Ross Wilson's head, he struck me as a special kind of being, but I didn't put it together, of course, when I was dancing at the Brighton Blue Light Disco to Eagle Rock that it was the same guy. And then I started hearing Mondo Rock singles on the radio in the early 80s, in my teens, while I was at high school. And so, yeah, I feel like he's kind of like the sound of him has been in my life for a really long time. And then I was in a relationship with Gary Young for a number of years and he introduced me to Russ and to the other members of Daddy Cool as well as the guys from the Falcons and stuff. So I got to meet all those guys through Gary and go and hear them play. And I also got to sort of discover some of the history, some old films and things, which is when I came across Oz for the first time. I think Gary showed it to me for the first time because she had a song in the film, like the song that the lead female character sings in the film. Gary wrote that. That was something that I think he was, you know, interested. He wanted to share that with me and show me the film, and and I couldn't believe it back then. But what did he show it to you on back then, Mama? Was it a VHS or something? Yeah, video, video cassette. Yeah, Yeah, we would have watched it at home on telly, you know. Yeah. And the the album has I've always like that song beating around the bush has been forever. I've sort of heard that for a really long time. So that would have been a, a radio hit in the mid-70s, which I would have heard. But in terms of Ross Wilson, yeah, just, I guess, from my early teens, I've been aware of him and as a force in Australian music, I would say. There's something in common with two of the central figures on this album. Ross Wilson and Joe Camilleri mm. both had huge careers, at least to my memory, with two separate bands. I mean, often we hear that an artist will break away and start their solo career. So they have a big career with a band and big career solo. Of course, both of them had been in many bands, but the two really big bands were Daddy Cool and Mondo Rock for Ross Wilson before going solo, and Joe Camilleri with Jojo Zepp and the Falcons and the Black Sorrows afterwards. Probably I got people out there yelling at their devices telling me I'm an idiot, but it seems to me that it's a rare thing that someone has a career in two bands as opposed to... Yeah, I agree. Yes, you're right. Like Generally, there's kind of an ascension that occurs through a series of lesser-known bands, and then one band breaks out big, and then, you know, who knows what will happen after that. But definitely both those guys have had tremendous good fortune, and I'm sure they would both be the first to say this with the people people they've got to play with, the bands that they've chosen to surround themselves with have all been such excellent musicians and contributed so much as songwriters and side people and stuff that the success has been spread out over a much longer period, I guess. George, we were talking before about your own projects, Tiny Giants and Polyman, which sound to me like you really have always had a love of 70s Australian rock. Yes. What specifically were you listening to growing up and where did Ross Wilson fit into that? Well, I can tell you almost exactly what I listened to for the first six years of my life or so, which was a mixture of traditional blues, Elvis, Kiss, 
and daddy cool a lot of daddy cool growing up because um of course you know mum mum introduced us to them and told us a lot about them and i fell in love with so many of their songs particularly their cover of lollipop and duke of earl favorite of mine when I was about five to the point where mum took me to see them at Sydney Maya Music Bowl when I was about five or so. It was a great gig. I, I don't really remember much from it, but I do remember <laughs> I remember the, the omission of Duke of Earl from the set list because it was probably kind of an obscure <laughs> tune for them, uh, but it was my favorite and I wanted to hear it. And they didn't do it despite me and mum combining our voices to yell, play Duke of Earl as we could. <laughs> Um, and um, they didn't do it, so I had a meltdown through a big tantrum at Daddy Cool. Mum stopped me pretty quick by saying, if you keep throwing a tantrum, I'm not going to take you backstage. <laughs> so I, I snapped out of it and enjoyed the rest of the gig. But um, both of my parents are great Australian musicians, so I grew up around them and seeing so many Australian musicians growing up, and really only getting to see the best. I fell in love with Australian music very early on. And it's got a real specific sound, I think. There's a lot of tradition in it. We really love blues and country and the really old musics, like old American music. And I, I love what we've done with those. And you can really, there's a, definitely a, a, a unique flavor to the way we play rock or anything, which I really love and always have loved listening to. That stuff kind of formed my early love for music so that was sort of the mishmash that i grew up with and was fed in my formative years mm. and so, lots of acdc as well because yeah oh yeah acdc fan yeah and, um, tons of acdc acdc was big in the car and that was a big influence too i think So at the time that this album came out, and I should actually say, I've, I've neglected to mention to this point, the reason that I wanted to discuss the movie and the music this month is as of maybe two weeks ago, the album came out 45 years ago. So this yeah. is the 45th anniversary. I didn't want to wait another five years to get, to get to the 50th. So one thing I really like to do on shows from time to time is to put the album in context of what else was around at the time. And so only going to refer to Australian X. So I was looking at one of the Australian music charts i think it might have been kent and the singles that were out at the same time as living in the land of oz on very early august get this for the diversity how's that by sherbet yeah, awesome. Happy Days by the Silver Studs. And I think I actually have that 45 store at my parents' place. Jailbreak, which I also do have at my parents' well. place. Now, this one would be a favourite of yours, I'm sure, Sarah. Never Gonna Fall in Love Again by Mark Holden. Ha, <laughs> 
<laughs> Crazy by the Ted Mullery gang. Yeah. I like it both ways by Supernaut. I have no idea what they're, no idea what they're talking about. It's such a strange song. And On the Prowl by Old 55. Yeah, cool. I think a good point about bringing up those songs, because it not only shows the diversity of what was going on in the popular charts. I mean, there's obviously like a ton of other stuff that was out at the time, but this was what was riding high, presumably in the 3XY, 2SM and other charts around the country. These were what kids were listening to. The music on Oz, a rock and roll road movie, sort of has a foot in the camp of what was going on in the previous five years or so with heavy emphasis on what you were talking about there, George, of a great sense of Australia's spin on Americana with yeah. uh, bands like Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and and the Dingoes with their take on country. A lot of stuff that was very, very rootsy, but with a very local flavour. And- Renee Gayer is a great example of Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. American forms and, and just reinvented them, you know. It seemed like with bands like Skyhooks and, well, your Sherbets and your Mark Holdens were taking the scene <laughs> to somewhere else. There was a great crossover, I think, between lots of, of styles, as you were saying, you know, and something that I love to talk to younger people about and younger musicians about is the way that the charts back in the 70s particularly contained such huge diversity. There would be everything from some sort of weird novelty song, which was, you know, performed by people who were probably a lot older, and then there'd be some country music and there might be some sort of almost classical sort of music. There'd be some folk sort of stuff. There'd be out-and-out pop. There'd be disco, heavy metal, glam rock, everything you can think of. Yeah, in the one week. Yeah, we'd see all that in the one show and in, on Countdown in, in one episode and think, all right, well, all this is popular music. All this is what's happening. It was a fantastic, like Wayne was saying in the interview about the way that there was so much going on and people were sort of trying things on and there was a real sense of experimentation and that was ongoing from the, you know, people think of the 60s as being an experimental time. But I think for Australian music that the 70s was actually where it really came together because we'd been sort of aping the sounds from overseas up to that point. But 70s to me is a time when musicians in Australia really began to synthesise what we were hearing from overseas and create our own sound and put our own stamp on it. I think that was a really significant part of the 70s at all levels. So in the pub rock scene, which is where Wayne and and Ross and Jojo Zepp and all that sort of started out operating, and then in the sort of mainstream pop world and everything kind of in between. I 100% agree about the diversity of what was going on in the 70s. And, you know, you can't imagine having nowadays the equivalent of Shut Up Your Face and uh, (laughs) The Boys Are Back in Town on a chart. If the 70s were also a time for Australian musicians to come into their own then, and, and that's not taking anything away from some of the brilliant Australian groups of the 60s, but there was a lot going on in the 70s. And in some cases, there were bands from the 60s, like the Masters Apprentices, who were sort of continuing that on into the early 70s. But it's nice to see that there was a parallel between the Australian film industry, which was Mm. born again in the 70s, and the Australian music industry, which people sort of lost the whole notion of cultural cringe. I know that this is a common topic that a lot of people bring up, but I think it's well worth repeating here. You listen to American songs or English songs, and there's never been a problem with naming local places or local customs within popular song. I know that Skyhooks are often credited with being the first band to sort of knock that down with having songs set in 
interact. Yeah, really celebrating it. Selling drugs in Carlton or jerking off into a twisties bag in a Swanson <laughs> Street porno cinema or something. The cultural cringe had gone. They kicked it out the door and then it became a common thing. You know, Paul Kelly did it all the time and mm. you know, so many other artists have gone and done it. That's true. Mm. And I think Skyhooks do take and deserve credit for localising music in Australia, but there were also forerunners to that who operated more in a fringe kind of way. And I can think of bands like the Palaco Brothers and the Fabulous Nudes who were around sort of in a similar time through the mid-70s and they didn't achieve the same level of fame, although, of course, Stephen Cummings was in the Palacos and went on to form sports, and as we know. But those guys were unashamedly Australian, singing in Australian accents and using terminology in their songs, like the Fabulous Nudes had a song called I'll Be a Dag for You, Baby, which is like (laughs) that could have come out in any other country. I'll be a dag for you, baby. I'll be a dag for you, baby. A dirty rag for you, baby. A big turk for you, darling. I'll be a dag for you, baby. Now what you gonna say about that? And that's one of the great songs of the 70s. And in country music, I think it was always a very strong theme. A lot of the great Aboriginal country artists of the 60s and uh, 50s and 60s and 70s were, you know, very, very uh, parochial in their subject matter and stuff. So I think all that had an influence as well. I do want to come back to the Skyhook's influence on Ross Wilson. I mean, I know you might sort of think, hang on, it shouldn't be the other way around. But I definitely think that Ross, to an extent, was reinvigorated after having produced mm. Living in the 70s. And I can see an influence on a couple of the songs on this album but we will come back to that this is mainly for the benefit of the people outside of australia i think it might be worth just a few minutes of talking a little bit about ross wilson and chris levane the director of the film a reader's digest potted history of ross wilson so he started out as a 16 year old playing with a blues r&b flavored band called the pink finks talk about this on an interview with Brian Nankervis a few weeks ago. I mean, I'm not sure how old the interview is. He was talking with a lot of affection about those days and he learnt the harmonica. It seems unusual to me hearing a 16-year-old kid like Ross Wilson singing songs like Backdoor Man like by Willie Dixon, or <laughs> also popularised by Howlin' Wolf. But that's where he joined up for the first time with the brilliant and underappreciated in my opinion, Ross Hannaford. Yeah. He wanted to do a band. That I don't think they ever recorded much but I think maybe just one single a song called Gentle Art a band called The Party Machine really the name doesn't because this is 
very, very introspective. Have you heard this song, Sarah? Um, I probably have, but I don't remember it. The Party Machine, I'm not that familiar. I'm more familiar with The Mighty Kong and The Sons of the Vegetal Mother, the other acts that he were around that sort of came before Daddy Cool. Talk about your opinions of uh, Sons of the Vegetal Mother, which was basically the lineup of what was to become Daddy Cool plus Mike Rudd. Yeah, Mike Rudd's the guy I was thinking of, yeah. I don't know much about them and obviously never got to see them play or anything like that, but I understand that they were what they describe as a seminal band. very, very strong political and kind of ethical leanings, I suppose. Like their songs were, they were all getting into macro, but macrobiotic food. And uh, there's a tie in there with Chris Levine, actually, because I think, which you'll, you'll probably mention, I dare say, but it was a, a kind of a latter day hippie kind of collective in a way, but they were informed by their desire to create a better world and a better society and, and a more kind way to, uh, to treat our fellow creatures. And yeah, veganism, macro, early vegan in, uh, sort of outfit and macrobiotic food and sort of espousing very, very progressive ideas in their music. So from what I understand, I think their music was sort of leaning in a proggy direction as well. I think it might have been in this interview that I heard Ross doing with Brian where he said that they would do daddy cool sets, so doo-wop in between sets of Sons of the Vegetal Mother. Yeah. Quite a contrast. But then again, as you said, before the 70s, was this experimental time and people would listen to everything. So to have a, a doo-wop group do a set, I mean, well, the same musicians ostensibly, but have them do a doo-wop set in between prog-related stuff seemed to work very well. I was just going to say, you can understand very well why the doo-wop thing took off because there'd only be so many sort of 13, 14, 15-minute songs about looking up. Veganism. And, 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 <laughs> I mean, the, the audience's attention span has limits. And so when, when you've got <laughs> tremendously fun out Outfit coming on in the breaks and playing Duke of Earl and Lollipop and so forth. You can understand why that took off. Don't mention Duke of Earl. It gets George upset. <laughs> I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, well, to me, it's a really interesting cycle, you know, because Russ Wilson talks about having come under the influence also of musicians like Frank Zappa and, and some of the European prog acts that were coming up at the time. And in latter day, Daddy Cool recording, those influences definitely came back in, you know, and he, the last Daddy Cool album that you would call a sort of proper release was uh, almost a, a concept album with, with sex dope and rock and roll yeah yeah with some really quite experimental sounds and a much more progressive air to the whole thing yeah that song loving and fj sounds definitely more like frank zappa than early daddy cool totally well, get out in the back seat. <laughs> Spectrum was formed from that sort of scene also and 
and a lot of their stuff was like their biggest hit obviously was a very simple kind of country song but and a great song but a lot of their other recordings were far more lengthy and experimental and you know really beautiful but more demanding of the listener we'll skip daddy cool because i think ostensibly the whole audience i'm presuming knows about that great doo-wop and then experimental sort of thing and playing venues like oh what was it called the tf much ballroom that's it thank you the tf much so where was it? i always sort of thought that was in st kilda but that was apparently in the north side of melbourne wasn't it yeah it was in fitzroy on brunswick street up the top there i think i was confusing it with the george hotel what was it called the the crystal ballroom mm-hmm. uh, I, th- I thought i figured it might have been that venue but no there needs to be like you know you played recently at the brunswick ballroom there need to be more yeah balls. yeah every everyone i know everyone my age is loving the brunswick ballroom because it's a good it's not a massive venue it's not like the forum or you know somewhere kind of inaccessible to bands who might have a bit of a following or might not really have a following but want to play a nice room with that isn't a sticky floored pub which is you know you got to play those when you you know that's how you cut your teeth and everything but everyone i know is loving the brunswick ballroom it's because um you know the spotted mallard was a lovely venue as well but a venue is really only made by the people that come to it and the scene that it houses and so i feel like the brunswick ballroom now is become a much younger venue and yeah people are loving it everyone loves the gigs there because it has a old school atmosphere but we're finally getting to experience what we've always heard about in the melbourne music scene all these great old rooms that used to be available for bands to play in and bigger bands or bands that were, were kind of on the on the rise could sell out and it was a great gig. Yes, a special occasion sort of a thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool that that lineage is there with, from the TF Much Ballroom through the Crystal Ballroom in the seven in the later 70s and, and 80s and now we've got the Brunswick Ballroom. Yeah, well, it's the only venue of its kind I can think of really that's doing that sort of thing. A hell of a first year to try and start a venue as well but everyone who's running it is yeah they're just they're doing their absolute best in the circumstances and i haven't had a bad time there so just finishing off on the ross wilson thing he did an album i think in between daddy cool and the oz soundtrack with an outfit that he called mighty kong with ross hannaford once again and i reckon that this was a blueprint for what became at least the first run mondo rock sound via primal park which he did after the oz album that sort of tougher more contemporary sound yes absolutely He was someone who's always stretching his boundaries and then came the 80s with the more popular version of Mondo Rock and you know still had some terrific songs but Primal Park I tend to think maybe because it was a same name but completely different lineup has been maybe ignored by a lot of people and and there's a really stark sort of line drawn there between the 70s and the 80s with Mondo Rock I think the fugitive kind sounds like a record that was made in the 70s albeit the late 70s and chemistry, you know, as an example of another single from that band, totally sounds like a single that was made in the 80s. And they were not that far apart in time. But yes, as you say, the lineup changed and the influences changed and the direction changed and that's how it works. All right. So let's 
talk a little bit about the other big creative force behind Oz, a rock and roll road movie. That's the director, Chris Levine. So in the late 60s, he was bassist for only a small portion of the time for a band called Campact. They put out only a few singles, and I think Chris was only on one of them, but the music that I heard from them was really good. It's a shame they never sort of got to record a full-length album, at least not that I'm aware of. Was Keith Glass part of that? Do you know? He was. He was the singer in that band, and um, I think Chris Stockley was in that band also. Oh, wow. Oh, well, there you go. So rock royalty, super group in reverse. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was in it. Money. <laughs> I was watching an interview with Chris on the Blu-ray of Not Quite Hollywood. For anyone out there who hasn't seen the film, just make it a high priority. Unfortunately, they didn't put Chris's interview in the film, but if you get the Blu-ray, the whole 20-minute or so interview, uninterrupted, uncut, is takes pride of place on the Blu-ray special features. And he's talking about how he always loved holding a camera and he sort of thought, well, you know, there's plenty of other musicians out there. Let me see what I can do with a camera. He was truly a pioneer in the uh, uh, music video industry. I mean, there was no music video industry at the time when he started it. It was just, I think, the guys from Spectrum said, hey, you want to make a film for us? And they filmed I'll Be Gone. And then I I think um, uh, Ross Wilson said, I can't remember if Ross asked him, hey, can you do this? Or he offered Ross the opportunity to say, hey, I'd like to make a film for you. And this is before Eagle Rock was even a record or was even released. Wow. Um, I mean, the film clip is in very two very distinct parts. Part of it was recorded at the Maiponga Pop Festival in South Australia, according to Ross. But the more famous part that people remember, uh, well, besides the eagle dancing, is <laughs> is of the band sitting in a soda shop with their girlfriends uh, across the road from Luna Park. And mm. they, they all get excited when their good mate Ross Wilson happens to walk inside the place. And, <laughs> and, and the, the girls are saying, show us the latest dance, Ross. Show us the latest dance. <laughs> and he dances the eagle rock for them. And of course, the rest of the band just happens to have their instruments at the side of them while they're drinking their milkshakes. Well, Wayne, Wayne's actually behind the counter pretending to be. Oh, a- that's right. Yes, yes. He's <laughs> based up from behind the counter and starts plunking away on it. <laughs> I reckon that John Landis must have seen that film clip because if you remember that moment in the Blues Brothers where they go to rescue Matt Guitar Murphy from Aretha Frank and Blue Lou just happens to have his saxophone behind the... Um, just happens to have it. Yeah. He just happens yeah. to have it. They, they must have been fans of this film clip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such a great film clip. It's just killer. So I found a website that showed just how far Chris went in making film clips, and he made tons of them. I just sort of thought oh, he made those two that were pioneering and then didn't do much else. But there must have been something like 50 film clips that he did. I've noted six and went and rewatched all of these and thought, wow, he made this one. He made it. So he did Baked Beans for Mother Goose. Oh, wow. He did Women in Uniform for Skyhooks. Oh, man. That's, yeah, right. That's a great video. And these, the, and these two are in colour as well. So that's- Yes, yes, exactly. Yep. The Honey Dripper for Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. Oh, one that I saw tons of times on countdown uh strangers on a train by the sports Ooh, now i've got written down here split ends but i don't remember oh split ends a bunch so he did a ton of film clips for split ends and summer of 81 for mondo rock so coming back to ross wilson so he said in this interview that he liked films that featured 
rock music. He originally wanted mm. Oz to be like a road movie, sort of like a documentary about the life on the road of a band. But then for whatever reason, he decided, no, it's got to be a story. And he sort of figured, well, all, all these other great filmmakers steal plot elements from other films. You know, hell, I'll do my interpretation of The Wizard of Oz. He said, it's not The Wizard <laughs> of Oz, it's my interpretation. It's interesting to see that I think only a year or two later, there was the Motan adaptation, The Wiz. Yes. So, so Another it, strange, strange movie. Oh, yes. It's just a shame, I think, that he never got to make, at least to the best of my knowledge, another full-length feature film beyond beyond Oz, a rock and roll road movie. But he did say that there were issues with all the budget. He managed to accrue a budget for the film, but no one ever thought about, hey, save a little bit of that for promotion of the film afterwards. There was nothing <laughs> for promotion of the film. Mistake number one. The soundtrack album came out a week after the film was released. Now, the whole thing about rock music soundtracks for big films, especially big school holiday films, they're released months before the, the yeah. film does. I mean, think back to the era, no matter what you thought about the film, it made good business sense to have Can't Stop the Music come out before the film. And uh, although I think Australia was the only place that that film succeeded and Xanadu as well. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, love a cheesy, we love a cheesy film in Australia. Yeah. Do you know where he sort of got the idea to turn it into a Wizard of Oz adaptation? Was the idea or? The obvious connection is the word Oz, isn't it? Like- yeah. Well, he did mention that as well. He's said, well, Oz colloquially is known as you know, shorthand for Australia and Oz, he, said, he just sort of thought it sort of sells itself. Yeah, well, he left it to sell itself and unfortunately it didn't. But, but <laughs> yeah. that's a very interesting point you make about the failure to understand the need to market or to devote you know, energy or time to that. In the, in the re- little bit of reading I've done, it definitely seems as if it was not an afterthought, but definitely not a process that was thought through by any member of the organisation. I read that the budget for the entire movie was $150,000, right? Mm-hmm. So, which is a very, very small amount of money, even for back then. Mm. And so they hadn't kind of considered, obviously, what was going to happen around the film. Like these days, it would be unthinkable to not to dedicate a considerable portion of a budget that you had to pre-promotion and trying to drum up as much business as, and as much interest as possible, especially given that the movie is a musical film with such great songs in the sound track to rely in a way on the film as being a promotional vehicle for the music shows that they, they didn't recognize the need to actually flip that round and and make the music be the, the promotion mm. film especially if, if the film barely reached anyone you know the, no one's going to know about the soundtrack album if the film isn't getting out there and getting attention and all yeah. that sort of thing i think it's probably very easy for us to say like from the perspective 45 years later that what a big mistake that they made and certainly Chris Levine being a first time feature filmmaker didn't didn't have that experience to be able to know that sort of thing but I don't know to that point, certainly not in Australia how many films had the peripheral market of selling a soundtrack album alongside it? I mean, okay, there were films and I don't know how it was promoted, but you know, things like Woodstock would have sold itself because that was huge Hugely yeah. famous, a hugely famous event unto itself that was going to sell itself no matter what order the album or the film. It's more sort of operating in the along the same lines as something like Morning of the Earth or Evolution. You know, right. where the movie was only ever going to have a fairly small cult. 
adult audience mm. and the music was going to be enjoyed by that audience and they weren't actually concerned at all with cracking any big sort of market or I'm sure that Chris Levine as young and as, in, in, and as inexperienced as he was would have been very well aware that his film was idiosyncratic to say the least and that it was never going to be another picnic at Hanging Rock. I'm sure he wasn't aiming for that. It's just interesting to compare, I suppose, isn't it, the way that something like that was handled with the way that films, that other films that came out that had really successful soundtrack albums and had a lot higher profile, the way that that was dealt with later. I suppose it was a learning experience for everybody, really. Well, I guess if a lot of uh, future musicians, future filmmakers were to go back to marketing university, they'd say, right, here's how you don't do it. Let's talk about Oz, (laughs) a rock and roll road movie. Um, Yeah. It's also interesting to sort of think about where the film sits in terms of the Australian film revival. I mean, we've spoken a fair bit about how this film was part of that purple patch of Australian cinema, but the films that were coming out seemed to go into the two categories of either full-on art house, like your Breaker Morantz, like what you said about Picnic at Hanging Rock, Sarah. And then you had your Adventures of Barry McKenzie's, Stork, Dimbula, which no one wants to take ownership of, <laughs> Sunday Too Far Away, The Club. This film, it didn't seem to necessarily fit either market. This is a film that was not quite aimed for children, but it certainly wasn't aimed for the adults. Uh, it was aimed at rock fans, wasn't it? Yeah. And who, who were they? They were teenagers. And the characters, I think the characters in the film, although certainly not of the age, like I think Dorothy's meant to be, what, like 17 or so? 15, yeah. It was, I think it was made for, it seemed like teenagers that loved rock music and idolised rock stars and was telling the story of how so many teenage girls had to so rudely be awakened to the fact that these guys they idolised were kind of crummy and, yep. you know, a bit stupid and not very decent dudes at the end of the day a lot of the time. Yeah. That point shows that the film fits in completely with a lot of other 70s Australian film, regardless of whether it fell on the drive-in circuit or the art house circuit. And that mm. is over that period. And this certainly appeared to be a big thing of films with Jack Thompson. A lot of those films were about machismo. Jack Thompson was always playing the macho character, be it mm. in Wake and Fright or Peterson or Sunday Too Far Away or The Club. And this film, though, sort of turns it about on its head because, yeah, you get these macho characters. It's not their story. It's Dorothy's story and mm. how she has to learn through these people that fame and fortune will fuck you up. Um, <laughs> but, well, it'll, but It'll ruin you. We should probably sort of come to talking about the soundtrack album itself. Actually, what we'll do, we'll take a quick break, play another ad for another podcast or something like that because I like to be friendly that way. And then we'll come back to talk about the music itself because that was ostensibly why we started recording this podcast. We still will refer to the film, no doubt, but we'll come back to talk about the music from the film. You're listening to Love That Album with Morris here, Sarah there, and George somewhere else over there. We'll be back in a moment. It is Marcus, and I am here with Ray Koob. It is Listener Episode Month at the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. 
and all of the episodes released in the month of July have been chosen because of great listener suggestions. We have two fun five favorite episodes suggested by Hefe from Houston, Texas, and Mark from Alberta, Canada. We have episodes about Lou Reed and the Velvets and the Roots of New Orleans, suggested by Robert McKenzie from the UK and Robert Schooley, who sent in an email. Keep those episode suggestions coming by posting on our Facebook page, Twitter account, or Instagram all the imbalanced history of rock and roll. And you can email us at info at imbalancedhistory.com. So enjoy Listener Episode Month on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Flawless, a music podcast. My name is Grant. My name is George. My name is Liam. Each episode, one of the hosts or a guest, in this case a guest. My name is Eva Hendricks. I'm in Charlie Bliss. I'm Sam Hendricks, also in Charlie Bliss. I'm Spencer Nelson. My name is Jody. I play in a band called Flange Panties in Brisbane. My name is Blada Edarapaligi. My name is Maz, and I play in a band. One of the hosts or a guest nominates an album that they think is flawless. Fatboy Slim's You've Come a Long Way Baby. Kanye West, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Cake's Fashion Nugget. Havilah by The Drones. Chicken for Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar. And we talk about how they discovered it, what they love about it and what makes it flawless. Changed me from like a casual fan into like a rabid fanboy. Possibly one of the great opening songs of all time. It just does something to me that puts me in a different frame of mind. It just has such a rich, deep history of the black experience. It is confronting from start to finish, but I guess really that is what makes it an epic record. It has an innocence about it. It's like someone singing from their heart who doesn't know that people are listening. And they both have such amazing voices, so just sing to me always, forever in my life. Not only is this a flawless album, I would say that it's actually timeless. To me, it is flawless. A flawless record. More and more flawless the more I listen to it. Flawless. No, that's flawless. Flawless. I say yes, it's flawless. And I don't care whether the three of you say it's flawless or not. (laughs) (laughs) And we're back from break. And we're going to continue this conversation, focusing a bit more on the actual album that this show is supposed to be about, the soundtrack for Oz, a rock and roll road movie. As I said earlier, 45 years since the album was first released, which was probably 45 years and two months too late or something like that um should have been released two months early but anyway that's a conversation we had before the break let's make it a new conversation as i discussed with wayne earlier on in the show the soundtrack to the film came about because chris reached out to ross wilson who had already filmed for the daddy cool film clip and you know so they already had that connection for the album there seems to be like a core group of musicians i mean the slight lineup changes on a couple of different tracks but the core group of musicians be it under the ross wilson name or under the jojo zepp and the falcons name is ross hannaford jeff burston gary young john power as well as obviously ross wilson joe camilleri and wayne burt my question to you to start this off i mean obviously this is a soundtrack and it does have its moments where it points to things specifically in the film. And I want to come to that as well. But do you two think that this works as an album that you can just put on and listen to and never watch the film? Does it work as a cohesive set of songs for you? Definitely. I think the music is, without wanting to discount it at all, it's kind of broad enough 
in terms of its sound and its subject matter most of the time, well, general, I should say, that, yeah, they can all be appreciated. Like, because Living in the Land of Oz was Ross Wilson's first solo hit. Is that right? Yes, I believe so. And I imagine a lot of people that loved that song when it came out, there would have been a group of them that hadn't seen the movie and probably never did, but they loved that tune because it's just a really great track and the subject matter is really, you know, important and there weren't many songs talking about about that stuff at the time. Mum recognised Beating Around the Bush from when she was a kid, and that's a, just a fantastic song in its own right. Yep. Yeah, because it's not like the original Wizard of Oz, just if we're going to compare the two different musical movies where those songs are very much, like Somewhere Over the Rainbow can exist as, as its own song, but that's not real. Like, it's an I Want song for Dorothy. It's probably got the least to do with the story, I suppose, of any of them. Like, you know, all the different characters' songs that they sing are, are quite reliant on the story and the characters that are singing them. But I guess because they're so rockin' and so accessible, I feel like the soundtrack for the movie really can, can exist in a vacuum separate from the from the film mm-hmm. and, and totally be enjoyed by itself. Well, I, I disagree slightly that the album is sufficiently cohesive in tone to be enjoyed altogether. I'm looking at the, the album credits and seeing and, and have, have absorbed the information that this basically the same crew was responsible for most of the band tracks and only really the lead vocals change and the moods of the songs change. But mm-hmm. I think there are definitely songs in the soundtrack that hang together and then songs that sound like they don't belong. And to me, that signifies or kind of indicates the true purpose of the album. And it was interesting to hear Wayne talking about how some of the songs existed already, like Beating Around the Bush and Living in the Land of Oz were not written as songs for this film. They already existed. And a couple of the other songs may have also been like that. Like, I don't know about Gary's one, the country ballad that Joy sings. Not sure if that was a song that he had hanging around and they decided to give Joy a crack at it so that she could have a voice in the soundtrack as well. And You're Driving Me Insane, obviously, was an old hit from a band called The Missing Links, which was a band that was around in the late 60s. And I read in one of the bits of reading I did that they'd wanted to use Wild Thing, but they couldn't afford the rights. So uh, <laughs> it's really much better that they used an Australian song and, and that, they used, that they chose this one. It's really interesting also to me that there's two different versions of it on the soundtrack album there's the sort of the less full-on version which is from the real i'm putting real in inverted commas section of the film you know before the accident where dorothy crosses over into the fantasy world when she's at the original gig the hall stage in the hall yeah and they're they're doing this this much more sort of stripped back version and then later on of course when the wizard is fronting the band which i think is called the treatment from memory and and they're doing that huge show which is inside the palais but it turns out that it was actually at the, at the My Music Bowl in between sets of an ACDC gig, which, which I think is fantastic. And they used some of the crowd yeah. from that actual show. Genius, you know, such a great yeah. a great way to use things that were going on and save heaps of money. <laughs> yeah. Just about out of by then, apparently, because they shot the film in order of script, which is not commonly done. That's another thing that they did, which was unusual. And so to me, it's, it's a collection of songs that almost, despite itself, uh, actually hangs together as well as it does. Of course, 
course, the songs that were written for the film, like Greaseball and The Mood and, you know, the other pieces of music that sort of they're tied to characters, they kind of stick out a little bit more, even though they're recorded by and sung by the same people who did the... They've got more character to them, really, and they're, they're obviously more kind of showy, I suppose, you know, like they're formed differently from the, the songs that were going to be recorded anyway, if you know what I mean. Like the songs that, already, mm-hmm. that were probably going to be recorded anyway. I think the only song in the film that's diegetic is what you mentioned before about you're driving me insane. And mm. I do have some pretentious, wanky film theory reasons about why I think there are the two different versions in the film, but we'll come to that. So you've already gone and mentioned, Sarah, that a couple of these songs that appear in the film, they were written before the film. They weren't written specifically for the film. Mm. And one of them is Ross Wilson's title cut, of Living in the Land of Oz. Yeah. For him to record that in 1976, before Midnight Oil, before Goanna, before Paul Kelly, he would have been like the first white musician in Australia to record a song about white settlement in Australia. I think it had only been maybe about a year earlier when the Whitlam government had officially ended the white Australia policy, or maybe it was two years before that. In Living in the Land of Oz, Ross is addressing the wrongs in song rather than... Yeah. trying to be positive and said this is what we should do to make things better Ross is saying right before we can say what we can do to make things better we have to address where we fucked up yeah and it's genius the way it's used in the film because it's a bright happy sounding tune with a great beat and a really excellent vibe and if you weren't listening carefully you'd just be hearing the refrain living in the land of Oz and thinking that that's what it's about and meanwhile they yeah. drive to this beautiful countryside and it's unmistakably Australian and it's sort of it's really genius to me the way that he they've they've gone and made that brave move of flipping that song into the film because you will be listening to the lyrics even if you're not consciously listening to it and the message is getting implanted like it's being mm. message the message is being got across so despite the ignorant bogan element of the characters that are so unevolved I suppose there's this very sophisticated diatribe going sort of over the top about about what's actually happening currently in the country, you know, and mm. a little excerpt here that I'd like to read, if, if I might, from an interview that I found what Ross said about this song. He says, the lyrics to the song are to do with bringing migrants into this country, yet only a few years ago we were killing all the blacks. If you want to be a migrant, you usually have to be a white. They took a lot of trouble killing off the blacks and they don't want to do that all over again. And he says, there's a part in the film where Dorothy's wandering around the city and there are migrants hanging out of their slum doors, yet here we are in the wonderful land of Oz. So the music is trying to point out a few things like that it's not just pure fantasy so and the fact that there's a refrain a reprise version of it which is more slow and mournful and a little bit more introspective sounding as well it's sort of like a bit of a sad reprise or a mournful reprise to that Mm -hmm. original sort of version of the song that's really uplifting and and upbeat
So I think it's very, very clever and a, a really inspired choice of song to put in the film. Yet about 10 years later, or maybe even less than a decade later, Bruce Springsteen went and complained that why don't Americans understand that Born in the USA is a song about our problems? Well, because yeah. of singing this big anthemic fist-pumping song and people only hear Born in the USA, just as like 10 years before Ross Wilson sang Living in the Land of Oz to a very funky, almost sort of reggae-ish type of beat. Mm, yeah, dance beat. People could have very easily missed the point. Yeah, such a great mm. song, like a you know magnificent song and played so magnificently by the five men, Ross Hannaford, John Power and Gary Young. Yeah. Well, i got to say that if there was ever any doubt, and there never has been any doubt for me, but if there was any doubt that Gary Young is one of Australia's greatest drummers, this song should mm. make you think twice because he just, he's not just in the pocket, he was always in the pocket, but yeah, the, the dancing the, in the pocket. The pattern for this is creative. It, it sounds simple and yet it's creative. He's gone and taken something with that reggae beat, but it's not really. Mm, if you listen out for the kick drum, particularly, that's just dancing the whole time. It's amazing. That was the first thing I noticed when I heard the song when I was watching it with mum first ages and ages ago. It was just, I, I wasn't aware that Gary drummed on it. That, that's very bloody cool. There's one track where Freddie Strogs plays the drums, Freddie from Skyhook. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. On, well, that's on the Missing Link song, You're Driving Me Insane. That's right, yeah. Right. And all the other drums, as far as I can work out, are played by Gaz. Right. Yeah. Just magnificent. For the record, even though there's no real place to talk about it in this show, but as well as being one of Australia's greatest drummers, he's also a singer that I hugely admire. I mean, you were, you were talking earlier on in the show, George, about how you wanted to hear Duke of Earl, but I'm hoping... <laughs> given that you're a big Elvis fan and your mum's a big Elvis fan I know that the band also would do live One Night the old Elvis song which is yeah. possibly one of my favourite Elvis songs Kills it as a vocalist. Yeah, yeah. George sang that song one time, Morris, at an Elvis show that I put on. I used to <laughs> regularly. Yeah. And George In the style sang, of Gary, I'd say. Style of Gary Young, and you would have absolutely loved it. He did a great job of it. Oh my lord! Well, when you're back out doing shows, can you please do that for me? I'll come out. Of course. Oh, you're a you're a good man. I don't care what your mum says. <laughs> Uh, I'm just not as moody anymore. <laughs> I think the core trilogy of songs, it's notable that every member of Dorothy's accompanying party to mm -hmm. the big city. And look, for those, I'm sorry, we've never actually sort of gone and said what the variation, what the story is here for anyone who's not seen the film. It's on YouTube, so you should watch it. It's actually a carbon copy of the original film. It actually is. Like it's yeah. Just for a moment, what the variation is. So Dorothy yes, is a 16-year-old girl living in somewhere in small town Victoria, although it's never stated Victoria, but we know where it's filmed. Played by a certainly uh, un 
16-year-old actor. That was a common thing, weren't 16-year-old kids played by 25-year-old actors and actresses. (laughs) So she goes to see a band called Wally and the Falcons. And she goes off with the band in the van. The lead singer in her dream later on turns out to be the wizard. Bruce Spence was ostensibly the replacement for the scarecrow. He's a surfer. He's a little bit vague. The mechanic is the tin man, the one without a heart. Uh, A thing I picked up on my second watch about the tin man equivalent was i was like where's the tin aspect of him come in and you know you can kind of put grease ball together because he always needed oil to move and to function but he's always going on about tinnies as well and sinking tins of beer and so yeah me and sam when we were me and my flatmate were watching it i was like ah tins beer tins (laughs) and then we were both just like ah of course in the first scene where they're in the truck just before the accident and she goes into yeah. dreamland there's all these little throwaway lines like oh come on have a heart or yeah um, yeah or they're saying to bruce spence who's driving the van geez you're a bit thick aren't you yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, so, black rain correct yep. yeah that's really really clever the way that they did that with those characters because it does dawn on you slowly and it's sneaky the way that they introduced them and the sneaky the way that you realize who everybody actually is so i think yes yeah so in her dream she's making this trip which is really there's nothing fantastical about the story like there is in the original tale of the wizard of oz but it doesn't really matter but she's taking this trip to the big city to see the wizard who is a big glam rock artist Uh, she has three partners along the way but she gets separate time with them first of all with bruce spence the scarecrow the surfy and we hear in the background his song which is beating around the bush Greaseball when she stops off and then she's picked up by the mechanic. So we hear that song Greaseball as the music on their part of the trip. And I may just be another male chauvinist pig, but to you, I'm in the mood when she's traveling with the cowardly bikey. Yeah. And I think it was the best character in the movie. Oh, he gets cranky with him is just one of the best things in the film. I, <laughs> yeah. I suppose you think you're pretty tough. Well, don't put your luck with me, chick, because I'm on the run, see? Who from? Your mother? From the fucking law, that's who from. How do you know I want W in? You just try it, love, and I'll smash your pretty face in for you. Yeah? Yeah. You're pretty gonna push the chicks around, aren't you? What'd you do that for? I didn't even touch you. I don't like bullshit artists too ain't tough. Well, you didn't have to hit me. <laughs> That's a direct lift from the original film. So I'll recommend a film to you. I'm not sure if you either of you have seen this, but this came out maybe a year before Oz did. It's a film called Pure Shit or something, some sort of pure ass. Have you seen that, Sarah? Uh, I've seen a part of it, not the whole thing, but I don't, I've just seen it. We've spoken about it. Yeah. Right. Well, Gary Waddell, who plays the cowardly bikey in this film, yeah. is in pure shit. And I think Chris Levine said he'd seen that film and said, I got to have that guy. Got to have that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't. I haven't seen much more of him. Did he have much more of a career in the seventies or the eighties? I don't know. I'm pretty sure he was in Mad Max Two, but um, okay, he was either in Mad Max Two or Mad Max One. I'm pretty sure he was in one of those, but nothing much. He's since. so great. Yeah, I know. Oh, he's hysterical. That song for him is really great, and the yeah. I think it's got sort of a, like it has such a, a bikey sound, you know. That's got I think it's got a revving bike motor in it, and and yeah, yeah, it just implies that sort of macho apart from the lyrics of course which are very overtly macho but the the whole tone of the song is perfect isn't it Isn't that an interesting sort of thing that those two songs that Ross went and wrote for those characters are, as you say, very, very macho. And the song, of course, for the one guy who's looking after her interests, the scarecrow slash surfy, played by Bruce Spence, yeah. is beating around the bush. And it's just more, hey, isn't it lovely to be driving around? Yeah. yeah. Living in the city puts a lock on your door, man. <laughs> yeah. He's the hippie. So good. I mentioned before how I thought that in a way, Greg McCainch as a songwriter and certainly working with Skyhooks would have placed some sort of influence on Ross Wilson's music. And I wonder whether he would have come to write these songs like Greaseball and I'm in the Mood if he hadn't recorded Living in the 70s for Skyhooks. Shirley Strawn could have sung those songs. Yeah, I was just, just going to say that. Uh, yeah, easily in the vocal delivery. Yeah. Real high, aggressive, rocking kind of yeah. vocal sound. It's interesting. So, the next generation can influence the previous one. Yeah. Well, Ross Wilson was so, um, I think he was just so excited about working with those guys, wasn't he? And and um, there would have been a lot of exchange of ideas and influences in both directions, I reckon, for sure. Not that exactly Ross was an elder statesman of the Australian music scene by the time he came to produce Skyhooks, but certainly he was a known figure and he did write Australia's real national anthem. You know, Ross Wilson, by the time he came to produce Skyhooks, had been a performing musician of note and gathered a lot of studio experience over a period of a decade or more. That's a seasoned guy right there, even though he was still only 26 or 27 years old. But it did sort of seem to me, while thinking about this album and the film, that this great trilogy of songs, one for each of her three travelling partners, could end up within the same story, but they perfectly fit the characters who they represent. So in the song where she's travelling with the mechanic in Greaseball, he's looking for a woman he can stick it in. He digs the feel of sliding skin. We come back to this whole thing about the local flavour. How many American songs are you going to get something that sings like... I bet she bangs like a dunny door. I'll be the rat up her drain pipe. I love that. <laughs> she bangs like a dunny door. I think that's hilarious. Yeah. That song is not being recorded in the 21st century. No, but aren't we lucky we got it? 
that those lyrics are bawdy, bluesy lyrics. Like they're lyrics yeah, totally. Because there were people in the early 20th century singing songs like that, mm-hmm. and women doing it. Lots of women doing it. Yeah, it was like a joke kind of smutty, a, who could be grossest sort of thing, wasn't it? Could be the most outrageous, the most daring, and the most explicit. That's right. So yeah. Wasn't that Bessie Smith's whole repertoire? She wasn't the rudest though. There were others ruder. She was, she was the most popular amongst them, but but there were others who were. Definitely more daring in the lyric. To me, that it's it's a kind of a it's a, a that's an example of a tradition that's been taken and Aussieified and yeah, <laughs> another one of those traditional blues traditions. Yeah. Even the smutty ones. Yeah, nice smutty we, ones. We had to have a go of them. <laughs> but you're right. Like, it's it's not the sort of stuff that people would expect to be able to record and get away with these days, I guess. Yeah. No. Well, the sense of humour has changed, I suppose. People get a bit more sensitive about stuff. It's good that we are mindful of the of the potential offence that we can give when we sing and, and say things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's part of the enjoyment that we can find in these older recordings, I think, that we can have a bit of a laugh and nudge each other and go, oh, what? You know, he was meant to be unlikable. So if the song isn't trying to talk you into being sympathetic towards this guy. No way. Neither of those songs is meant to be doing that. They're both meant to be illustrating just how contemptible these characters actually are. (laughs) Although by later in the film, they come on her side and they're completely sympathetic. They're all a team. That's a common trope in film. As uh, contemptible as their characters may be in the early part of the film, they're not as bad as the evil trucker. Evil Trucker is just—he is irredeemable. Ned, Ned Kelly, and he get yeah, and he gets his in the end, which is exactly what he's supposed to get, and that's yeah. exactly how it's supposed to be. We get Dorothy; she's never submissive to these yeah. characters. They like to think they're in control, and yeah, they do provide the distraction when they come into the house to try and save her. But her ruby red slippers are the ones that give Ned Kelly, i.e., Skyhook's roadie, what for? Well, you know, when she gets rescued and they're in the car. And um, they, you know, they're asking if she's all right, and if he if he tried anything on her, and she said, oh, "I wouldn't have let him if he did." And you you kind of believe her, mm. like she would have really fucking laid out the guy. Oh, sorry for my yeah. language. She would have really <laughs> laid out, really really laid out the guy if it came to it, because she's bit, she was a tough chick the whole movie. She knew how to fix a car, and she knew how to take care of herself, and. She was accepting these rides from these dudes, but she wasn't taking any crap from them. This brings me to my only gripe about the soundtrack album and the soundtrack itself, is that I feel as pretty as the song is that she sings and as well-recorded and well-performed and all that sort of stuff as the song is that she sings, there's no kind of matching of the attitude or power in of the male-led vocals in a female-led vocal. Like, I'd be interested to know what the story was behind choosing her to sing when none of the other mm-hmm. characters sang. for the wizard himself, you know. But yes. why was that a more powerful sounding recording of a female voice wasn't chosen to represent Dorothy in the soundtrack? Mm. Interested to, to find out more That's about a good it. question. 
Yeah, I wonder about that. I wonder if there was any reason beyond just they wanted the lead actor to play, to sing her own song. Yep. Or something as, as kind of industry as that, or if there was a, a different kind of choice going on. A financial constraint or a time constraint, I wonder. But yeah. Pity. I think she could have been represented better. At least she could, maybe whilst not being necessarily the most powerful singer around, but she could hold a tune and maybe the same could not be said for Michael Carmen. Gary Waddell and Bruce Spence. Yeah, true. Mm, yeah. Things about an emotion that she basically embodies and remains true to throughout the film, which is her love for the character who she's pursuing and basically her whole way of being is, is kind and gentle. While mm. she's tough, she is also tough but tender. You know? Tough mm. and tender. The Rizzo <laughs> formula. We should probably say, so the name of the song that she sings is called Warm Tender Love, written by the aforementioned Gary Young. Listening to his Triple R radio show for years, Chicken Mary, always knew that you know he was a great fan of country music and so it's no surprise that he came up with a song like this i just think it's a shame that in this country it's just an album track on an album not many people bought for a film not many people saw but if he'd lived in america or he'd sold that song to an american singer at the time this song is fantastic. It's just your classic country waltz. What is the greatest of country lyrics? It's often about where did our love go wrong? And that's what this is all about. I've kept all the snapshots of our holidays down by the sea. They act as reminders of how a good love ought to be. But no one can guess what the future may bring or how, how fate can unfold. But who'd ever think that our warm, tender love could run cold? Yeah. In the hands of some of a lesser songwriter, that same sentiment could have been absolute drivel but Gary Young took that sentiment and made it into something real and true and to me it's just mm. a classic country song that yes. just not enough people have heard yeah I guess you're right I just sort of feel like it's, it doesn't get across enough of her and maybe I'm sort of looking for something that's a little bit more show tuney or a bit more sort of musical theatre-y and lamenting the lack of that I don't think it's a, you know I, I'm not saying it's a bad song and I don't think it's a bad performance or anything it's a really great track but yeah that's just my gripe only my only gripe really with that is that I feel that the the female character was was perhaps misrepresented in the soundtrack I'm not sure that it got her across as well mm. as the other songs got the other characters across if you know what I mean this is a song that was possibly written before Gary knew that he was going to be performing songs for this film and it just might have been I got this song can we use it and Chris and I we just put it on the soundtrack yeah and from what Wayne Burt was saying in his interview that there Definitely was the way it happened, you know, that things did come together very quickly. The easiest or the path of least resistance was followed, definitely. And, you know, while the recordings are excellent and all the tracks came up really, really well and the compilation of the album was done carefully and the, and the placement of the songs in the film and all that sort of thing, there would have been an element of if we have something here that we can use, let's use that rather than try to sort of... Agonise over it too much. Yeah, yeah, agonise over it, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And everybody was producing such great work. Work. It's great that so many excellent original Australian songs appear together on a soundtrack album, apart from anything mm. else. I think. I mean, it was still several years before, like a very, very different soundtrack, but in a similar sort of vein with uh, rock music of the time, Gillian Armstrong's film Starstruck, and oh, that's yeah. possibly the only other film from that period. I mean, I guess it was also the TV show Sweet and Sour, but in terms of cinematically released films, that's probably the only companion piece to this. Yeah. 
What about Dogs in Space? Did that have all Australian stuff on it? No, it didn't. I mean, there was some Michael Hutchins stuff, but also that had um, the, uh, the the Iggy Pop song. Oh, yeah. The Sea. forgotten the name, but there's the something, which is absolutely brilliant. But that I don't think that that was all Australian. It was it was a lot of it, but not all of it. Right. That mm-hmm. soundtrack, soundtrack is really good too. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. It's wonderful. <laughs> about as far as the soundtrack goes i'm happy for you to bring up any other thoughts that you've got but come back to the topic of you're driving me insane the missing links song and as you said before sarah there are the two different versions there's one that is the more oz rock style which is very much rooted in the pub rock style of the day And then there's the more bohemian glam rock version. I don't know how big it was a thing back then, but it always seems to have been an Australian thing to basically turn the nose up at anything that seems pretentious. I think it might have been a very deliberate choice to have the more macho pub rock sound of Wally and the Falcons at the beginning of the film in the reality Mm. set of the film versus the more glam rock androgynous phase of the film where they're recording at the Maya Music Bowl later on when we finally get to see the wizard performing with his band and of course a few minutes later in the film Dorothy gets to discover really that without his makeup the character of the wizard is just another pretty bloke. ordinary pretty pretty yeah. ordinary bloke but he has this bohemian lifestyle and there is that whole party of all the hangers on in the mm, hotel room I love the party there's a couple of members of the silver studs in the party oh really yeah I didn't pick them Gino and one of the other guys and there's yeah I spotted like five people that I recognised from the Glitterati. That was the hotel that where your mother worked, wasn't it, Mum? Yeah, the Southern Cross. Yeah, yeah, where all the stars stay. Well, it was it was good enough for the Beatles, right? On. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting what you're saying about the way that placed that song. I mean, in the narrative, it has to be that way. There's no way mm. that it could have been otherwise because we're seeing the unadorned version of the band, and then we see the fantasy version, which is the one at the concert, right? So that's how. It yes. But in the, some of the reviews I read of the film, that glam rock aspect, these are reviews from overseas, um, that glam rock aspect and the fantasy aspect and even old mate's G-string were really big. 
sticking point <laughs> and things that the reviewers really liked about the film. In fact, they saw those aspects of the film, that performance, particularly as the, t- the absolute highlight of the film. Yeah, and, for me as well. And it reaches, it's definitely, there's a peak that's reached there and and it is so strange and so over the top and, and he is the whizziest whiz that ever was. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's freaking out and it's great, you know, so it's, it's cool to see that other people have appreciated that and that while they may have been a little mystified, some of the overseas reviewers were a little mystified as to the purpose of a lot of the rest of the film, that they were able to kind of really enjoy that aspect. So, mm. Well, maybe because that was such an American and UK-styled uh, performance, you know, like that was kind of at the arse end of glam rock, really. Like, yeah. But David Bowie had already quit Ziggy Stardust a year, like yep. two years before that movie came out. Ken Russell had released Tommy like about a year or so before yeah, that. Right. Listomania would have come out about the same time. So that was right. still probably fresh in people's memories from a cinema point of yeah, view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and the effects of it were absolute, like the effects of the glam sort of craze and uprising, you know, they lingered for many years until punk came and kind of obliterated them. And then it sort of smashed it up into pieces that landed elsewhere with, you know, the new romantic movement and that sort of thing. Yeah, but I, I love how that very appealing, completely over-the-top glam style that, you know, was so popular in the States and in the UK particularly, it, it makes sense that that's what people were attracted to when they saw yeah. the movie because I suppose it reminded them it, it was the only thing in the film that reminded them of home maybe they finally saw something they recognised and went oh I liked the uh, I liked the glam performance because <laughs> it, it was the only thing they, they thought and w- they saw and went oh okay I know what that is what's going on here I have no idea what's happening for the rest of the film but that, that yeah. makes sense the original version at the start of the film is more in line with the Missing Links version which Although, mind you, like you listen to the Missing Links version and it's like just a classic piece of garage rock yeah. and Graham Matters. Of course, watching him in the film, I can't quite separate this from the, just listening to the soundtrack. But in the film, you know, he's more of a joke rather than being really threatening. The original Missing Links version sounds dangerous and nasty. Whereas mm. you know, here mm. he's just a guy in a band in a little scout hall in country Victoria. Yeah. And he's all, he's all sort of insecure and uh, you know he keeps asking Dorothy if she thinks he's any good and all that stuff and everyone's making fun of his singing and everything <laughs> yeah he's not threatening no, no he's the least no. least threatening guy in the world but he goes from being a threatening wannabe to being the androgynous wizard that everyone worships who's the greatest at the beginning of the film you get this sense that Dorothy's there because well it's music it's a band I might as well be there but it's a changing of the guard the early 70s Sunbury generation is moving on and it's mm. coming back to those sorts of bands who are like we were talking about before I mean, maybe not so much the Silver Studs but more uh, you know your Sherbets the Dorothys in the real world may have followed I mean not that Sherbet is so much glam I guess but they wore those flashy glam suits yeah. for a time and the, the influence was definitely there I mean Skyhooks was glam influence too you know they- oh yeah 
Skyhooks is about the best that we did in terms of glam rock. Except that they had a, they had a sense of humour. Yeah, but that's the thing. Glam always was tongue-in-cheek. That was sort of the point. Mm. It was kind of, you know, it was taking archetypal 50s rock characters and flipping them on their heads and turning them into cartoonish almost characters. And it, the whole thing was just kind of a joke. That's why it couldn't last very long. Yeah, and messing with androgyny, was, um, which was deliberately confronting and confusing for lots of people, yeah. so it was a great tool to use for young exactly. musicians. You know. Yeah, and David <laughs> Bowie knew what he was doing when he went on the top of the pops, and you know, put his arm around Mick Ronson and gave the camera that look, that sort of flirtatious look. It was all very. It was just made to be provocative and cheeky, which is why it was so fun. That's the thing about that part of the movie, Oz. It is mm. that concert performance and the and the recording of that song is just it was so over the top and fun and and yeah. great, and and it's completely believable, even though. It wasn't his crowd that the. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and he only the, sang one song. Yeah, yeah, and they, they went crazy. What the? Yeah. <laughs> it's in the film that they would have been having that response to him, you know? Yes, yeah, because it was quite amazing looking with the headpiece on and the, the G string and everything. <laughs> really put the G in G string. <laughs> Graham Matters. Yeah, putting the G in G string. <laughs> take a moment, actually, now that I've just been so terribly disrespectful to Graham Matters to um, mark his passing because apparently he died in May. Oh, oh really? Yeah. This year? I didn't know that until I started reading about him. Oh, well, we dedicate this episode in tribute to the memory of the late Graham Matters. Thank you yeah. for the giving wizard. us so much enjoyment. i got to say that previously I really liked this film and I acknowledge, yeah, it's got a few faults, but I thought, yeah, this is okay. This is a good film. But yeah. I think sort of re-watching it and re-listening mm. to the soundtrack for this show, I think I'm more in love with it than mm. ever before. And it's yeah, so st- lovable. It's not necessarily a perfect film, but it's a wonderful film. It's an enjoyable film. And like, I know several years ago when I watched for the first time The Phantom of the Paradise, the Brian De Palma film, and I felt the same way back then. I thought, yeah, this is a good film, but successive watchings really got me to fall in love with it all the more. And maybe that's what you sometimes need. And yeah, sure. Yeah. The, and the, this film, if you just sort of relax and let yourself go and don't worry if the dialogue is not classic script dialogue just have a bit of fun with it and the, the soundtrack which is you know supposed to be the focus of this show I don't know if it has been always but <laughs> but these songs are a good collection of the songs and yeah look I probably will sort of acknowledge what you say there Sarah is that it probably needs to be appreciated within the context of the film but if you come across a secondhand copy of this because it's certainly not been repressed on vinyl and I don't know whether it ever got a, a, a CD release and if there's anyone from Umbrella out there listening please yeah. put out a Blu-ray of this because this will look great. I reckon my opinions of, because I wasn't really sure about how the songs came about and everything, the ones that I'm referring to that can exist off the album are definitely the ones that were already bouncing around. Mm. You know, You're Driving Me Insane and Living in the Land of Oz and those sorts of tracks. Yeah, I think the other ones I would agree, yeah, they exist very well in the film and could exist outside but certainly serve the story more than yeah. a casual listen. Now, I don't know whether either of you had come across these, but I was doing a bit of a search and I found out that there were a few cover versions of Living in the Land of Oz. Well, All right. Um, well, okay, the first one, you know, it's debatable whether you'd say it's a cover. I mean, I guess I will still say it, but Mondo Rock would continue to perform it live in the 80s. I'm not so much of a fan of it.
I heard that one the other day, actually. And yeah, what did they you really think? lost. The, well, they lost the funkiness of it and kind right. of the focus, I guess. And it did just sort of sound like a pub band bashing it out rather than a really focused, intelligent piece of political rock. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I, I think they kind of lost something over, no. with it over time. I'm 100% with you. It looks like the Dingoes did a cover version. Living in the land of ours. Rod Smith, I love his voice. I'm not quite sure he did it as well as Ross Wilson does, but his voice on this song makes sense. I think their version is a pretty good version. And a version which I wanted to like more than I did, but it had horrible 80s production. But there was a version by Margaret Roadnight. I mean, look, her voice is great, and I'm convinced that if it didn't have 80s production on it, it would have been a great cover. Yeah, she should remix it and take all that shit off and just get a cool band to record a really nice, earthy band track and, and put it out again. And the other one, musician who I know of by name, but I'm really not paying that much attention to a lot of the popular country music scene here, but Adam Brand had done a version of Beating Around the Bush. Living in the city puts a lock on your door. It's nice, but it takes away some of the earthiness, in my opinion. Well, I, mm-hmm. I can think of a band who should have a go at beating around the bush. Who, who should do it? Polyman. Oh, uh-huh. yes, I, I believe that you uh, you know someone in the band. Yeah, <laughs> I'm his photographer. Ah, yes, right. Well, can you have a word in his ear? I'll try and get one in there somewhere. Do you have any final thoughts you want to convey? Anything else that we haven't spoken about? Any of these songs? I mean, we don't do this as a track by track sort of discussion. But is there yeah. anything overall about the album or a point we haven't made, or another song that you wanted to especially highlight as a favourite? None that I can really think of. Yeah, I feel like we've covered basically everything that I wanted to talk about. Everything, and yeah, I can't think of anything more. I just like to say what a great pleasure it's been talking about this record and this film with you guys and that I hope that everybody jumps on YouTube or finds the film to watch it if they haven't already seen it and also gets a hold of the of the soundtrack album and listens to the greatness uh, particularly of the songs Living in the Land of Oz, Beating Around the Bush and Glad I'm Living Here. Those three mm. songs are to me the strongest songs on the record and, and I think that they are the most kind of representative of the group of musicians who got together to make the album and the era and the place it's important to note that all these musicians went from this point which this wasn't a multi-million selling album but they all went on to sell tons and tons of records and make lots and lots of great music really good to make that this is an album that was made at a time as you say Morris Russ had had a lot of success with that tool in this country particularly and went on to have a lot more success with Mondo Rock but Joe Camilleri was 
really just kind of starting out as a, as a band leader and a, and a singer-songwriter. And Wayne Burt had big stuff ahead of him too. And all those guys went on to do really major work in mm. the Australian music industry and, and around the world too. So it's a valuable document of that as well. Yeah, it's just such a movie. It's just a movie and a soundtrack that's just brimming with just love and fun, I think. Yes, I agree. Just pe- people doing it for all the right reasons, I reckon. Yeah, amen. Once again, I want to thank both of you. This has been such a fun conversation, and yeah. I'm, I'm so thrilled to have had you both on the show. I know that at the start of the show, George, you were saying that just before the fifth lockdown, which was a few weeks ago, that you just finished the new Polyman album. So all things being equal, when do you think that'll uh, see the light of day? Well, we're hoping to really start releasing stuff towards the end of this year. It's hard to say now because it's it's nigh on impossible to uh, plan things at the moment, but yeah. I want to try to get it out, the album out early next year if I can help it. And that's the plan. Yeah, so uh, until that point, we're just going to be playing gigs when we can and finish off everything and slowly feed it out. Sarah, any new songs in the works? Anything you're planning on recording? Yes, I, I do have some new songs in the works. I've got, I've written about half a dozen over the last year, I suppose, which I really like and think are good. And Great. Thank you, sweetheart. And I've got a few knocking around from previous years as well that I'd like to have a go at. So I've got certainly have enough at this point for an album. And I've got one song that I'm really keen to record soon with the boys and Jasper at Big Fridge Studio. <laughs> the new uh, name for Corumban Studios, which is where I did my last recording and where George does a lot of his work. And yes, so that's a neighbourhood studio for me. Uh, not so much for George right now, but mm. uh, like, I'm really keen to get cracking on that pretty soon. And I've got a really great idea for a video. And yeah, so I want to try to do that sometime in the next few months. But yeah, as Georgie said, it's really hard to plan and get your mind or heart set on anything right now. So I'm just yes. vaguely hoping that it will happen soon. Mm. Fingers crossed, and I hope uh, I can get to see either or both of you play live in the interim. All right, we'll be back in a moment, and I'll talk to you uh, listeners about what is going to be happening for the month of September on episode 150 of Love That Album. We'll be back in a moment. My thanks once again to Sarah Carroll and to George Carroll Wilson for their time talking to me about Oz, a rock and roll road movie. 
The aim of this show is more to talk about the soundtrack. I guess we spoke for quite a long time about the film, but we also spoke for a fair bit about the music history, Australian music history of the time. And that's something that I really like to do on this show, and I hope it's something that you enjoyed listening to. Please go out and support both of these musicians when you get the chance, when we're out of lockdown. By the time you listen to this five years down the track, who knows, maybe music's been going and you've forgotten what all this lockdown was all about, or there may not be any music anymore. I don't know. Why am I saying this? All right, so let's talk about next month's show. That'll be Love That Album, episode 150. I was contemplating doing something of a bit of a celebration for reaching that as a milestone, but I've already gone and done a 10-year anniversary, so 150 is just going to be another show. But it is not going to be just another show. I have an interview, and that's really something to celebrate. I have only just gotten onto the fact that there was a band from Montreal called Harmonium in the early 70s. Up until this year, I had never known anything about them. I have just discovered their music this year, and boy, am I glad I finally got onto them. They are absolutely fantastic. They're put into the category of prog rock, and you can sort of see why people say that, but this is not like listening to Kim Chris or like listening to Genesis. They're very different. It's a lot more introspective, their music. Very, very melodic, which is not to say that Genesis or Yes or King Crimson or Jethro Tull or any of those bands of that ilk are not melodic, but this is a very different type of thing. Very, very sweet. And they recorded three albums between 1970 or 71 through to the end of 1974. So they really only had a short lifespan. What's happened is the band have reformed and their main songwriter, Serge Fiore, has gone and put together a magnificent package. Basically, all their original music has been re-recorded with a symphony orchestra. It's been rearranged and put together as a symphony of sorts. And this four-record, two-CD set is called Histoire Sans Parole. Please forgive me. I have never studied French, so I apologize if my pronunciation is incorrect. And I'm really very embarrassed as to how it's going to be next month during the show. I won't murder any other phrases this time around. But yes, the name of the album is called Histoire Sans Parole, and it came out in December 2020, and it's just an absolutely magnificent package. So what is happening for next month is I'm going to be having a conversation with Serge Fiore of Harmonium, and we're going to be talking about the band's history, about his approach to composition, and what it feels like to have all that music rearranged for a symphony orchestra, and the contrast between playing just in a band and playing with an orchestra. So that should be a really fascinating conversation. And I'm looking forward to you guys out there listening to some of this music. It's absolutely beautiful. So that will be coming up in September of 2021. Anything else to tell you? Not that I can think of. You already have all the contact details from earlier on in the show. So all I can say to you is please look after yourself. If you're in lockdown, reach out to your friends, talk to them on Skype or Zoom or the phone or anything like that. Carry a pigeon, send messages. Messages. Look after your own sanity. Look after your friends. Look after your loved ones. Be nice to each other. Don't go getting into arguments on social media. It's rubbish. It's stupid. I know it's a difficult world. A lot of crazy things are going on. I'll speak to you next month. All the best. Cheers. Black Seas, you're all that I can see. And it's me, Black Sea, that you oh, 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 oh.
overseas, can't you give me a rest? Cause I'm working as hard as I can You've already put me to the test 